The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to speak tonight, taking my thoughts from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And my theme is biblical authority, the last line of defense. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 4 through verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Biblical authority, the last line of defense. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But with the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, you all know where that's from, Genesis chapter 1, says Paul, said, let there be light, also has shone his light, says Paul, the light of the gospel, into our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same God, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness in the beginning, has now shone this light of the gospel into our hearts. And so, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper is the ESV translation. Actually, the New King James I prefer. He says, we do not adulterate, adulterate the word or tamper with the word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. In every place, in all times, there are several things that everyone shares in common. Let me tell you what I think those are. First of all, every person in every nation under heaven is a creature of God and they recognize this, and as such, they're accountable to God. That's the first premise of biblical revelation. Second, men and women are everywhere embroiled in what Paul talks about disgraceful and underhanded ways. Fallen humanity. Some translations render it shameful deeds. The hidden things of shame. Third, Everyone, therefore, needs to hear the challenge of the gospel because all people are related to one another under our federal head, who is Adam. 
The new head, of course, of the people of God is Jesus Christ. So all need the gospel because in Adam all die. Fourth, without Christ, all men and women worship the creature rather than the creator. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness and seek knowledge and salvation elsewhere. In other words, put simply, without Christ, everybody in one way or another is a humanist. And finally, if it weren't for the grace of God, that's exactly where we'd be. If it wasn't for the grace of God, that's where we would be. Paul says here, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. The ministry of CMI. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. It's because of God's mercy that we don't lose heart. However difficult it gets, I know what life on the road is like. I know how difficult it is. No matter how challenging it is, no matter how tough the reception is, we don't lose heart because we are recipients of the mercy of God. And we've been given this word. And so we refuse to tamper with God's word or adulterate the word, but with open statement of the truth, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. And because we've been given by the mercy of God his word, we have here the last line of defense in the propagation of the gospel. Without God's word, we have no mercy, we have no message, there is no grace, there is no salvation. If there is no light which spoke, if there is no God who said, let there be light in the darkness, there is no message of the gospel. There is no light to shine in our hearts the glory of God. Not only so, but we can no longer commend ourselves to people's consciences. The word then is adulterated, error and hypocrisy reign, and we become ineffective. That's the point. Is that if we tamper with the word of God, says Paul, we cease to commend ourselves to the very people to whom we're speaking. Our message no longer commends itself to the conscience of man because we have adulterated the Word of God. Now, in our time and in our age, the first place that this adulteration begins, not surprisingly, is at the beginning. It begins at the beginning. It's been my experience, you find almost any false doctrine, any heretic, any moral compromise in the life of the church, and you can guarantee that before this has happened, Genesis has been abandoned. Genesis is the seed plot of all the Bible, especially those first 11 chapters. And if you can destroy this history, you can destroy everything in biblical revelation from the law of God to the atonement to the family to morality to the very concept of human civilization. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The psalmist asked that question. This magisterial work of Genesis gives us this account of the ontological trinity calling all things into existence from nothing, and this makes it an unparalleled message anywhere in the history of the world. It is singular and unique. And there is no previous literal antecedent, that which is that which comes before, into which we can root supposed only figurative or allegorical meanings of Genesis. There's nothing that comes before it in which we can ground such interpretations. It 
is the very basis for all of the Bible's future figurative uses. It provides the structure for biblical revelation. And as we see even here in 2 Corinthians 4, creation and salvation, light and knowledge, stand in a historical continuum together. This word that God has given to us, with which we mustn't tamper, says Paul, interprets the world in which we live. And without it, friends, without this word from God, without the creator God of Scripture, there is no decree from God, and with no decree from God, there can't even be any science. Because scientists really believe in predestination. They call it something else, but they all believe in predestination. You can't do an experiment without predestination. There is no order, there is no pattern, there is no structure to reality. There is no meaning to discover if there is no plan, no God, no designer, no creator. There isn't anything there to discover. Just the meaningless jumble of atoms. And so you have historical relativism or process and the lust for academic respectability wherever Genesis is jettisoned in favor of some other paradigm. That's, in summary, really what I want to say tonight, but let me fill in some of the blanks for you. In this first verse of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul reminds us we've received this ministry by mercy, by the grace of God, and that should make Christians the most humble people in the world. That as we hold out the word of life, we do so with humility, know that we have received it by the grace of God. And one of the reasons that we know this is that the Word of God is self-attesting. It speaks for itself. It guarantees its own authority. God uses the preacher. God uses the apologist. God uses the creation scientist. God uses various instruments to make His Word known. But He is not dependent on my authorization or anybody else's. For the authority of his word. The Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and Christ nowhere appears, appeals to experts to justify any of his claims. You never see Jesus footnote Plato, Cicero, or anyone in the New Testament. I'm used to doing academic work, and in academic work, as you know, you footnote your sources. You show your authorities so that people can check you out and check up on you. Isn't it fascinating that God doesn't offer a single footnote in the Bible? He doesn't appeal to anybody outside of himself. It's because of the ministry of the Spirit in our lives that we experience the revolution that takes place when we are converted, and from then on, the irrevocable call of God in our lives, from then on we are to see all of the world through the lens of God's unadulterated word. And Christ speaks with that same voice, doesn't he? He says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. On whose authority do you do this? On whose authority do you say these things? Oh, well, I did some reading and I studied with so-and-so and I read this book. No, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It's important then to recognize that the Word of God is something that we have received by the mercy of God, not something we have developed. 
And this is the beginning of all arrogance and all presumption when it comes to dealing with the Scriptures. Biblical authority does not come from us. It doesn't originate with us. It's not something that we even establish. We are not the judges over God's Word on the basis of some human criteria that stands outside of God's Word to judge it. Not even the geology of Emil Silvestru, my friend, stands in judgment of the Word of God. Rather, he sees his geology through the lens of the Word of God. We've received this ministry by mercy, and therefore we don't lose heart, even though our allies are few in this cultural moment. Worse still, friends, if fallible, weak people are the ultimate standard of truth, there is absolutely no grounds for hope whatsoever. If this is not a word that is established and guaranteed by God, there is no basis for hope. We have received this word from the Sovereign Lord, from Christ himself, by faith. But faith does not mean there are no facts. We receive it by faith. But we don't abstract this ministry that we've been given from the world. We don't say, oh, well, it's just faith, brother. You know, well, God created the world. Is there any evidence for that? Well, it's faith. Uh, God flooded the earth. Have you got any evidence for that? It's just faith, brother. Well, it is faith, but there is more. We don't abstract this ministry from the world. We do our theology and we deal with doctrine as relevant to the world. Otherwise, we make our faith irrelevant. CMI, to my mind, is a ministry that is seeking to show the relevance of the Word of God to some of the most important areas of life and study for human beings. Since there was writing, since literature was. Just have to go back to Babylon and the Gilgamesh ep epic to see men constructing myths of origins. We cannot limit this faith, this ministry that we've received to the classroom, to the pulpit, in the church even, to the seminary. It must not be privatized to the individual because Christ Jesus is Lord over everything. He's Lord over history. He's Lord over science. He's Lord of society. He is Lord over culture. There is not one aspect of all creation that is not governed by Christ. The faith is not simply concerned with you and your immediate needs and your personal life after death and so on. That's important, but that, the message is not man-centered. We're so accustomed to thinking that the church exists to service my personal needs, and if I don't like this particular variety, I'll go somewhere else, that we can actually, by default, make the faith irrelevant to the world around us. God's Word has been given for all people, for every area of life, not just to limit it to ecclesiastical structures. So by grace we've received this ministry, and we've been given this truth to declare. And therefore, says Paul... We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Now that is the challenge to us as God's church. It's the intellectual challenge of the message. There are very simply, according to Paul, two ways to live. By the hidden things of shame, or as the ESV renders it, by disgraceful underhanded ways, or to live by the unadulterated Word. A word that is not tampered with. A word that is not manipulated. 
Ever since our first parents distorted God's word, the human race has been distorting God's revelation of himself. We distort his revelation in creation. We distort the revelation of his word. And we have deceitfully mixed God's word with the word of man, and we've thereby traded the authority of God for human authority. Indeed, we have transferred infallibility from God to ourselves. You see, the doctrine of the authority or the infallibility of the word of God is not something that Christians simply have. We're not the only ones with the doctrine of authority and infallibility. The world has their own doctrine of infallibility. The communists thought that the party was infallible, and they said so openly. The modern scientist who's devoted, so devoted, so blindly devoted to his naturalistic philosophy, he really believes in the infallibility of the scientific process. We have just exchanged God's word for man's, and we have put our trust in human myths, whether they have a scientific veneer or otherwise, rather than the word of God. And this is done, ultimately, the scripture says, not because we're so brilliant, but in fact because we are ethically in rebellion against God, and we want to escape our accountability to our Creator. You see, Jesus himself, who knew that the Word of God was utterly certain, defeated Satan and every test of the enemy, unlike our first parents, by responding with the Word of God. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. This whole chapter of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, is about the value of Christ and his word and their ultimate significance. And in verse 6, Paul reminds us that Christ has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that is why we cannot tamper with the word of God. That's why. It's about the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same God who spoke and said, let there be light, has spoken now light into our lives in and through the person of Jesus Christ. This temptation to adulterate, though, to tamper with God's word is always with us. One of the 20th century's most famous German theologians, the academic theologian Karl Barth, who was far from evangelical in his understanding, wrote of the biblical writers, he said, that their natural science, quote, conception of the world, and also to a great extent their morality, cannot be binding for us. They told all sorts of sagas and legends, and at least made a free use of all kinds of mythological material. In many things they said, and in some important propositions, they contradicted each other, end quote. Well, this idea has become commonplace in the church today, even in so-called evangelical churches. But in contrast to Karl Barth, the apostle Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, says Peter. But we know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
funny how the academic theologians always seem to disagree with the apostles. Well, I know where I'm placing my money. Peter goes on to indicate that turning aside from God's word to false teaching, he says in 2 Peter 22, is due to sensuality. Isn't that interesting? When Peter says that men turn away from the word of God, he says it's due to sensuality, to carnality, to immorality. What did Jesus say? Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because they're so brilliant, they're so intellectual. No, he says, no, because their deeds are evil. That's why we turn away from the light of God's word. One's own desires rather than depending on God's word. I've often wondered about Karl Barth himself. You had anybody who's read about Karl Barth knows of his highly questionable living arrangements with more, more, more than one woman. It was widely reported he was having an affair. Whether that's true or not, God only knows. But if it is true... I have no doubt that his ethical lifestyle influenced his vision of Scripture, in fact, determined his vision of the Word of God. Because we cannot ever separate ethics from knowledge. Jesus says that those who want to know whether the doctrine is true need to come towards God. If you want to know if you want to do, Jesus says, the will of my Father, that one, he shall know whether the doctrine is true or not. Ethics and knowledge can never be separated. Knowledge is ethical, and we believe what we want to believe, and those things determine how we live, no matter how much we plume ourselves on our learning. When, we come, when it comes to the Word of God, our tendency is to take what is convenient for us, and leave the rest. If, it, if what God's Word says impinges in some way upon my great learning in the sciences, well, I'll just have to set aside those things which challenge my learning in the sciences. If it challenges my ethical lifestyle, well, I will set aside those things in Scripture that challenge my ethical lifestyle. I'll reinterpret those. While the Apostle Paul equally condemns such speculation that stems from the authority of uh, so-called experts, by the way, I'm not decrying scholarship or expertise per se, only faithless scholarship and faithless expertise. Paul says, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Notice that faith in God and his word is our criterion for truth, not the speculations and distortions of men in Paul. Why? He says, because it's about the saving purposes of God. These issues are about salvation. And it can only be made manifest through Christ and faithfulness to his word. This is a concrete, not an abstracted issue. When I say concrete, I mean this concerns, this message, this faith concerns the real world, space and time, the world we live in. As the writer of Hebrews tells us about the creation of the world itself, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The writer of Hebrews says, 
That's faith. That is our starting point. This world, this universe exists by the word of God. It was prepared by the word of God. It wasn't made out of those things which do appear. The universe did not create the universe. Because the universe would need to have existed before it existed to create itself. Every physical thing there is did not create every physical thing there is. It's absurd, and yet there are people who believe it who have PhDs from Oxford. It's our faith. That's where it begins. But the person who denies the book of Genesis is no less a person of faith. The immunologist George Klein, for example, puts it very, very clearly when he says, I am not an agnostic. I'm an atheist. My attitude is not based on science, but rather on faith. The absence of a creator, the non-existence of God is my childhood faith, my adult belief, unshakable and holy. End quote. Michael Paul writes of Huxley, he says, Huxley vested Dame Nature, as he called her, with attributes hitherto ascribed to God, a tactic eagerly copied by others since. The logical oddity of crediting nature, every physical thing there is, with planning and creating every physical thing there is, passed unnoticed. Dame nature, like some ancient fertility goddess, had taken up residence, her maternal arms encompassing Victorian scientific naturalism, end quote. And this takes on a fully religious character when you read modern scientific apologists like Chet Ramo. In his book I read a few years ago, True Believers and Skeptics, Chet Ramo says this. Listen to this very carefully. The God of, of spiraling powers resides in nature beyond all metaphors, beyond all scriptures, beyond all final theories. It is the ground and source of our sense of wonderment, of power, of powerlessness, of light, of dark, of meaning, and of bafflement. It is the God whose history began with the first human who experienced awe, contingency, fear. Their encounter, gate-jawed and silent, the God of birds and birth defects, trees and cancer, quarks and galaxies, earthquakes and supernovas, Awesome, edifying, dreadful and good, more beautiful and more terrible than is strictly necessary. Let it strike you dumb with worship and fear beyond all words, beyond logic. What is it? It is everything that is. End quote. Now that's paganism. In a modern scientific vernacular, you have unadulterated, pure paganism, pantheism at best. Nature itself being personified, okay, it's not called Zeus and Thor and so on and so forth, but it's exactly the same concept. We either live then in the world of faith in the word of God, or we live in the world of faith in the word of man, who stumbles through the darkness, worshipping everything from the physical world to numbers, like the Pythagoreans who sang hymns to the number 10, quite literally, 
to his own mind and, men, and thinking, that's an object of man's worship as well, or we accept Christ and his word. And there isn't a third option. It's those two options. This leads us then, friends, to the most salient issue facing Christians today. It's the authority of man or it's the authority of God. And I would say for Christians, for Bible-believing Christians, that is the difference between the formal authority of God's Word and the material authority of God's Word. What do I mean by that? Well, formal authority refers to how the Bible conceives of itself and its own authority and how we express that in a system. We talk about the plenary verbal inspiration of the Scriptures and that what God has said is infallible. We sum it up in a system. But the material authority of God's Word refers to how that authority operates in our practical lives, in our churches, in our education, in our science, in our history, in our politics, in our culture. In other words, the risk of focusing on defending simply formal authority, which many uh, Christian deniers of Genesis would say they held to and hold to the formal authority of the Bible, The danger with this only is that we abstract thought and imagination from the real world and from history. That is, we say that this word, this word that God has given, has no bearing on history. It has no bearing on the real historic world of creation. It's a spiritual and a moral book. But if God's word exists in abstraction from the world, reality can be restructured by the imagination of anyone. And God's word, then, is actually reduced to man's word. If I say I believe in the authority of Scripture, but then I take it out from its, the, the context of history, of space and time, and I say it's a spiritual book and a moral book, well, I can make the Bible mean pretty much anything I want from that point on, because it doesn't bear any resemblance to the real world. The Geschichte, as the German academic liberals called it. The Word of God is reduced then still to man's Word whilst affirming its formal authority. But God's revelation to humankind from Genesis to Revelation is concrete in history, supremely in the person of Christ, our Creator and our Redeemer, a message preserved in the sacred Scriptures as our foundation of knowledge. Any other approach reshapes history on the canvas of our own imaginations and our own reasonings. And that's the essence of relativism. That's why relativism is in the church today. That's the essence of existentialism. It's the root of apostate science. Truth, reality, history are constructed by individual minds or groups operating within their particular social context or a particular scientific paradigm without reference to the Word of God. And we see this wherever human beings try to creatively construct the world or rationalize the facts for the first time rather than reconstructing things as God says they are. See, our thought is meant to be creatively reconstructive of God's thought. That's what the early Christian astronomers believed. We're thinking God's thoughts after him. The non-Christian mind, and very often the compromised Christian mind, doesn't really think in those terms. We think that we're coming to the world and we're dealing with the facts in some sort of an original way. 
And I will determine the relationship between the facts of my experience. I don't really need to consult God. How do I put that another way, perhaps in a more simple way to understand? We can have a tendency to see Scripture as a book whose authority has been constructed by us. That the authority of it somehow depends upon us, and the temptation is for our guiding hermeneutic then, if, if really the authority of God's Word depends on me showing it to be up to date with the latest ideas, theories, and fads, What has happened is that I have made my hermeneutic, that's my key for understanding the Bible, to be a philosophical or scientific idea or hypothesis that doesn't find its root in Scripture. It's from the outside. And I take a pre-established idea and then I impose it upon the Bible and then I say, the Scriptures are authoritative because it measures up to my understanding or measures up to somebody else's idea or fits in with what the majority of scientists say, or the majority of philosophers think. The effort to find a place, for example, for evolution in the Bible is one such futile project. And I agree with both Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones here in thinking that it will be exposed as the greatest hoax in the history of the Western world. It will be. But Scripture, in fact, comes to us as a sovereign would speak to a subject. The Bible doesn't negotiate with you. It doesn't say, sit down and let's you know, argue about this one. Have you, what's your interpretation? How do you read it? What? Scripture is a command word. It makes unquestionable claims upon us, not because it measures up to our standards that we've established, but because it is the Word of God. So you can have a high view of the authority of the Bible, and yet have a very low view of Scripture, if it's not applied. And that's the problem for the church today. It's not just in the area of of the sciences, it's right across the board. The material authority of the Bible, the applied Word of God. It's amazing how many people think I'm a heretic for saying that Christ is Lord over culture, and we should apply God's Word to the concept of education even though that was the whole history of the Western world's approach to education. You see, we have this yes-but mentality in the modern church today, don't we? It is God's Word, but... It's God's Word, but the writers didn't understand modern science, so we have to make allowances there. It is the Word of God, but Paul was a prisoner of his age, and he didn't really understand the true character of homosexuality. You can understand that he lived in the first century. It is the Word of God, but... Jesus was operating under the familiar understanding of a first century Jew, and he didn't really understand that. So when he spoke about our first parents in the garden of God and the flood, he didn't really know what we know now. Well, this is what Christians say now. Many of them. So the Son of God himself didn't know. And he didn't understand really that when he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This was the way it was from the beginning, while he didn't really know what he was talking about. Well, what did he know then that we can actually rely on? What did Jesus say that we can actually trust? According to most Christians today, we can't trust the genealogies in Luke's gospel because they go right back to Adam, his Jesus' ancestor. 
But for most theistic evolutionists, Jesus, well, he's a product of evolution. There was no historical Adam. So at what point does the New Testament start telling the truth? You see how this is related to the same God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, is the same God who sends Christ and shines the light of the gospel into our hearts. You can't separate the two. One manifestation of this low view of Scripture is material authority, that is that it's not really applied to life and thought, is the view then that revelation and, and science or history speak to completely different levels or spheres of reality. It's a kind of dualism. A lot of Christians speak today as though the Bible has no real bearing on these subjects. You know, I heard a Cambridge physicist who is a Christian say that, well, the Bible's not concerned with the how and the what, but the why. Sounds incredibly pious. But it's totally false. Scripture is very concerned with the how and the what. In fact, this very concept that you can separate phenomena or event and its meaning is itself nonsense. Fact and meaning, even secular philosophers of science understand this. You cannot separate fact and meaning. What we're told today, you see, is these are non-noma, N-O-M-A. These are non-overlapping magisterium. You heard that expression? You have the realm of science and history, and then you've got the spiritual teachings of the Bible. These are non-overlapping magisterium. Man's word is authoritative as God's. And as soon as that approach is accepted, what we've done is we've separated fact and meaning. But friends, for the facts to be the facts, they've already been interpreted in terms of a meaning. You can't separate fact and meaning because as soon as you say there's a fact, you've already interpreted it. You've already given it a meaning in terms of a broad vision of reality, a theory. That's why the Bible's so unique, is that it gives us facts and events that carry their meaning within them. That's why it's not a book of fanciful myths and philosophical dialogues that have a sort of parabolic meaning in the tale, like reading the Hindu Vedas or something. It's about history, creation, the calling of a nation and of a man, Abraham, the sending of God the Son into the world, the building of God's church in history. It's all in space-time history. The fact, for example, of the virgin birth carries with it a meaning. That's a fact. The historic fact of the virgin birth. What does that imply? Well, do virgins normally conceive? No. Therefore, there is a meaning there that this man is totally unique. He's the son of God. That's the meaning of the virgin birth, is it not? That's why we're about to celebrate it at Christmas time. He's the God man. But if we say, well, scientifically, virgin births don't happen, this is nonsense, scientific rubbish. Since when can a virgin conceive? Unless she's been artificially inseminated, which is cheating. It's impossible. It can't happen. This is not possible. That's why the early apologists against Christianity, like Celsus, I think, suggested that uh, Jesus' mother had been raped by a Roman soldier. Because even then, believe it or not, in the first century, they knew that virgins didn't have babies. Meaning, fact and meaning here are 
interrelated. If we say that it's, a, it's impossible scientifically, then that historic fact does not permit us to retain the biblical meaning, does it? And that is, of course, exactly what liberalism did. It con- denied the virgin birth, amongst many other miracles, and concluded that Jesus is not the unique Son of God. Well, that's obvious. Of course he's not. He's just a special guy. Nice chap, a good teacher. He can't be the Son of God. Miracles don't happen. You see, you deny the history, and the event loses its meaning. You deny the fact, and it loses its meaning. Likewise, if billions of years of cosmic evolution or millions of years of biological mistake-ridden evolution replace the historic fact of the fiat creation, the meaning conveyed by the creation is lost. And this seems to me to be utterly rudimentary. The purposeful, most holy, most wise, sovereign God of Scripture ceases to be detectable in his own creation. How do you find that God in a universe of process, of mistake-ridden process, of chance? How do you find such a God? You can't even distinguish that God from the mindless process of a pantheistic vision of reality. You say, well, God's in there. He's in the process. Where? See, at the end of time, Scripture says that he's going to roll up the heavens like a curtain. He's going to make, there's going to be a new creation, and we're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. It's not going to need billions of years. At the horizon of our understanding of the universe lies God. The recreation will be instantaneous in terms of what God wants to do. He will speak it and it will be done. When we see him, we shall be like him. We shall be changed, Scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye. Not a process, but the fiat act of God at the horizon of human understanding at the end of history, just as at the horizon at the beginning of history, God acted and God spoke. You see, Christianity is found in the rubble of an abandoned first 11 chapters of Genesis. If we abandon those chapters, Christianity is found there in the rubble, no sin, no fall, no Adam and no second Adam. The issue is that man wants to sin and declare his independence from God. He wants to elevate his theories to the stature of revelation. I was amused a couple of weeks ago reading in the newspapers and on the uh, internet about the potential discovery of subatomic particles traveling faster than light. Did you read about this? Various... uh, Countries have sent their scientists to look at these results, and as far as I understand it, nobody is challenging these results. But there may be... Now, for those of you who don't appreciate the significance of this, up until now, this is thought by science to be totally impossible. Nothing can break the speed of light. As things get faster, the mass increases to infinity, I believe, Emil. So hang on a minute. If I'm making my theories revelation, then everybody who hang their hat on various theories of the universe, of the cosmos, 
up until now in the sciences and said, that's revelation. That's, that's as good as God's word. God's revelation in the world, there it is. Through the scientists. Well, very soon, I strongly suspect we're going to be in the midst of a scientific revolution because cosmology, as we've known it, is out. Einstein's theory of relativity is going to be out or at least seen as a mere stepping stone, stone to something more profound, something deeper. And half the Christian books of Christian apologetics that hang their hat on the Big Bang and various other ideas are going to be consigned to the trash. If Scripture is always subject to the latest philosophical or scientific paradigm, you'll be forever reinterpreting the Bible. Scripture has to be allowed to be the primary interpreter of Scripture, not Near Eastern myths, not popular scientific hypotheses. No matter how much secondary value those things have, I've read Near Eastern mythology, tried to understand Egyptian mythology and Babylonian mythology. That can help me understand how this book of Genesis would have struck the Eastern mind at that time, yes. I'm interested in what the scientists are discovering, most of all because they seem so baffled by the universe that God has created every time they fire another quark at someone. We can use all of those things. They add color to our understanding, but our starting point is self-conscious submission to Scripture by the Holy Spirit because the Scriptures are not as impenetrable in their meaning as most modern scholars of Genesis want you to believe. History, friends is all history, and you don't misunderstand me when I say this, you'll have to listen to the context, all history is interpretation. All history. But without God's infallible interpretation of events, all you've got left is the raw data. You don't have true meaning. And this is why the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clearness of Scripture is so important. If God's revelation isn't clear and you need 50 experts on Near Eastern myth and modern cosmology to interpret it for you, there is no revelation from God. We call this the perspicuity of Scripture, the clearness of Scripture. You can read it, and you can understand it. Yes, some bits are hard to understand, and we need discipline and the help of others. But God's revelation is clear. Fact and value can't be separated. Fact and meaning can't be separated. St. John, the great interpreter of events in John's Gospel, points out at the end of recording the signs and I am sayings of Jesus, he points out at the end, he says, these things are written, these facts are written, why? So that you might believe. And that believing you might have life in his name. That's why they're written. And if... We should have written all the things that Jesus did. Well, maybe the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books that could be written about him. St. Peter, think about this for fact and meaning. When P Peter heard the report of the empty tomb, saw the empty tomb, he didn't believe. John did. Peter didn't. He didn't understand the meaning of the event at that point. But it was important that Peter knew the event had happened, and he later understood its meaning. In other words, if we don't let Scripture speak for itself and be the lens by which we understand all the facts, then really we just have to accept the latest pronouncements of the humanists, be they scientists or historians, who have a different faith and a different religious conviction. And we say that, well, those bits that they speak to means that our Bible is non-revelational in that area. 
It's non-revelational there. It's non-revelational here. It's non-revelational there. In other words, revelation is only what other people approve for you is revelation. Do you understand that? What so-and-so approves, that's revelation. But if he or she, that scientist or that thinker or that philosopher hasn't approved it, it's not revelation. And yet no writer of Scripture, least of all the Lord Jesus, gave us the least hint that some of Scripture is revelational and some is not. What the Apostle Paul says about church unity is revelation, but what Jesus says about our first parents isn't revelation. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? He says, if I speak to you about earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe me when I tell you of heavenly things? If you'd have believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe Moses, how will you believe what I say? This is why the creation issue, friends, is far from peripheral because God is revealed in the books of Moses and all of Scripture as creator before he's our redeemer. And the doctrine of creation is a logical starting point for an assault on the faith. It's a logical starting point. It's why the creation issue is so far from peripheral but comes to the heart of the adulteration of the Word of God. Last few moments. Paul again and again denounces tampering with the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, he emphasizes the same point we've got here in Corinthians. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Myths. Two things stand out here. First, the motivation for deceitful use of the Word of God is what? He says to bring the Word into line with their own desires. In accordance with their own desires. In other words, the motive behind tampering with the Word of God is ethical. It's moral. Secondly, he says that at such times people will turn aside to myth. And if there ever were an archetypal definition of myth, evolution is it. In fact, it's the dominant cultural myth of our age, as it was in the ancient pagan world. And philosophers of science who have called it a cultural myth have been roundly condemned. The word here in the Greek is muthos, meaning to instruct, and we get the word mythology from it. But the New Testament word doesn't give you the idea of a story or a fable that has a meaning or a punch in the end of it, which is what many deniers of historical understanding of Scripture would have us believe in order to retain some role for the Bible. Rather, in the New Testament, muthos is a lying fable, a pretense, or a falsehood. It's something fabricated by the mind over and against that which is real and true. And myths can use logic, they can use science, they can use rationality, they can use all manner of high-sounding ideas and yet still be myths. The more sophisticated the myth, the better, and often the more convincing, especially for the uninitiated. Paul attacks this, then, adulteration of the word, this tampering with the word, because, and this is the rub, when the human mind and its theories, fables, traditions, and abstractions is set over against the word of God as a higher authority, we no longer recommend ourselves to people's consciences. This is Paul's concern. It's not about being right. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about being on even the right side of the intellectual debate. Paul says that ultimately it's because 
if we adulterate the word of God, the non-believer's conscience is no longer impacted by our message and the gospel is no longer recommended to the hearts of men. That's why. Scripture is anti-myth in character, Genesis in particular. And if we cave to contemporary myths, the unadulterated word is without power. This does not mean we reject science. It does not mean we reject scholarship. It does mean we reject the opinions of some scientists. It means we reject the philosophical vision with which they view the world. Christianity led the way in the very concepts of historical study, historical veracity, as we have understood history in the Western tradition, of scientific research from astronomy to medicine. We are concerned with external evidences, but friends, in the end, our faith and confidence does not rest, finally, in whether an archaeologist or a scientist can find us a piece of evidence to back up the virgin birth. Of course, we're thrilled and not surprised when an archaeologist who's a Christian or a creation scientist turns up some fantastic new thing and we say, look how the word of God is confirmed, and we're glad. But we're equally not surprised when a scientist or an archaeologist offers us something that seeks to deny the word of God and reaches a faulty conclusion in their interpretation. Because our confidence does not rest upon men's ideas as judges over the word of God but God's word itself as the final authority. This is the way Jesus speaks. I am the way, the truth, and the life. People deny this word, not for intellectual reasons, finally. Sometimes their moral objections manifest as intellectual objections, but ultimately it's because of a rebellion against God and his authority. Ignorance is not the main enemy, Rebellion is. The existentialist philosopher Camus said, very interestingly, there is the way of grace and there is the way of rebellion. No matter how hard someone might fight it, the word of God commends itself to people's consciences when Christians are faithful in word and deed to the word of God. It cannot fail to commend itself to the non-believer. When we compromise it, that's when we lose. I have to conclude with this quotation from Charles Darwin. I could not resist. Because Charles Darwin, on his voyage around the world on the HMS Beagle, despite his growing agnosticism and certainly his deistic religious convictions at the time, he found himself completely unable to overlook the impact of Christian missionaries in Tahiti and the Pacific Islands. The first book he ever wrote was his journal of his voyage around the world. And it was before his naturalistic theory had really gripped his thinking to the point where he just couldn't see past it. And he was unable to withhold reigning praise on evangelical missionaries in that part of the world. Let me tell you what he said. Quote, It appears to me that the morality and religion of the inhabitants are highly creditable. There are many who attack both the missionaries, their system, and the effects produced by it. Such reasoners never compare the present state with that of the island only 20 years ago, nor even with that of Europe at this day, but they compare it with the high standard of gospel perfection. They forget or will not remember that human sacrifices and the power of an idolatrous priesthood 
A system of profligacy unparalleled in any other part of the world, infanticide as a consequence of that system, bloody wars where the conquerors spared neither women nor children, that all these have been abolished. And that dishonesty, intemperance and licentiousness have been greatly reduced by the introduction of Christianity. In a voyager, to forget these things is base ingratitude. For should he chance to be at the point of shipwreck on some unknown coast, he will most devoutedly pray that the lesson of the missionary may have extended thus far. Those who are most severe should consider how much of the morality of the women in Europe is owing to the system early impressed by mothers on their daughters and how much in each individual case to the precepts of religion. But it is useless to argue against such reasoners. I believe that disappointed in not finding the field of licentiousness quite so open as formerly, they will not give credit to a morality which they do not wish to practice or to a religion which they undervalue, if not despise. I found that a fascinating statement. What is Darwin actually saying? He's affirming in that passage the value of life, the inherent value of infants, the horror and evil of bloodthirsty men, the horror of idolatry, the value of sexual purity, the power of the Christian gospel to transform lives, and that remarkable observation that if you land on a desert island in that area, you pray to God that the missionaries have been there. Otherwise, you're going to be a canoe shortly thereafter. But of course, Darwin later wrote in The Descent of Man and in letters to his friends, he questioned the value of non-white races the existence of a personal creator, the providence of God, and the superiority of Christian ethics over any other system when he became devoted to his naturalistic myth. And I've written about the fact that Darwin was indoctrinated and in, had no instruction in Scripture in his degree studying for the ministry. And he was really taught to believe in an absent God. Had his education been faithful to Scripture, I wonder if Darwin's life might have been very different. It wasn't. You know, the church bears a lot of responsibility for Charles Darwin and his ideas. It does. And that's why this organization is so important. That's why the work of Christian apologetics is so important. God, says Paul, has rendered foolish the wisdom of the world. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this age, where is the wise man, where is the scholar, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The presupposition that the infallible word is necessary for any form of true understanding and meaning is basic to the Christian faith and is the last line of defense for the gospel. And at the beginning of that cosmic story, friends, is the doctrine of creation. And we surrender it at our peril. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.